This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Sometimes it can be something as simple as manual labor, which was the task appointed to the golem of Helm, the Scotty Pippen of golems. Um, when the golem's work is done, or when the golem has disobeyed so profoundly that he needs to be unmade, he's unmade by erasing one letter from the word truth. The aleph is erased, changing the word truth to the word death, and the golem returns to his inchoate state. Um, the golem of the golem of Brooklyn is a little different in some substantial ways from the golems of traditional folklore and mythology. First of all, he's not created by a scholarly or learned or a particularly observant man. He is made by an art teacher named Len Bronstein who is simply in possession of a large quantity of clay and extremely stoned. And he does not make the golem because there's a pressing emergency as much as because he is extremely stoned. So the golem comes to life and immediately starts cursing and screaming at Len in Yiddish, which is a language Len does not speak, uh, and trashing his apartment. Len manages to calm the golem down by placing it in front of a television which is playing an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm and runs out to try to find someone to help him translate so he can understand what this creation of his, this 10-foot, 400-pound golem that he's brought to life, goddammit, uh, is talking about. So, the only person in Len's neighborhood that he knows speaks Yiddish is a woman he's never met in his house. He once went in there to buy snacks and heard her curse out some yeshiva kids who came in to buy cigarettes. So he's like, aha. So he goes to this bodega with the intention of trying to convince this stranger to like come back to his weird apartment and translate from the Yiddish whatever this golem is saying. She is understandably not all that enthused by the prospect of doing this. Um, but eventually the golem does learn English by binge-watching Curb Your Enthusiasm after ingesting a massive amount of LSD. And at this point, we learn, and this again differs from traditional golems of folklore, we learn that this golem is a creature in possession of an ancestral memory. So Len has not made this golem, Len has remade this golem. And this golem remembers every previous iteration of himself. He remembers adventures and misadventures in ancient Greece and 5th century Babylon and 11th century Spain. He is essentially a kind of repository of Jewish memory and trauma, two words that are more or less synonymous. And he is very upset at the notion that he's been called into service in the absence of a mission. 
he's very insistent on knowing what the crisis is and who is trying to kill the Jews. And Len is like, I, I don't really have an answer for you. Um, we also learn that the Golem's previous incarnation, the previous time he roamed the planet, was in 1941. He was made by the Grand Rebbe of a, of a Hasidic sect in Ukraine, Kiev, Ukraine. And the last thing he remembers is being riddled with machine gun bullets by German soldiers and cast into the Babin Yar Gorge, uh, along with 33,000 other Jews who were murdered in a 36-hour period at that time in the early stages of the war during what was known as the Holocaust by bullets. So this is the last thing the Golem remembers. So he doesn't know the Holocaust happened. So like Len and, and Miri, the, Hasid, the, the woman from the bodega, have to explain it to him, which I don't know, I thought that would be like funny or something, I don't, I don't know. Um, various adventures and misadventures follow as the Golem gets his bearings and Len and Miri form a kind of unlikely team to shepherd him through these adventures. But he never stops asking, where is the crisis? And eventually, after some things have happened, Miri answers this question by showing the golem on her phone footage of the 2017 Charlottesville Unite the Right, Jews Will Not Replace Us, Tiki Torch marchers. And she's like, these guys, this, you, want, you want a crisis? Here's the crisis. Here's trying to, who's trying to kill the Jews? And the golem is like, OK, finally, we're getting somewhere. Where are those guys? And as luck would have it, in a couple of days' time, there is a rally scheduled to happen in Wagner, Kentucky, which I made up. Kentucky is real. Um, which is going to attract a similar cross-section of the extreme right. It's called the Save Our History's Future Rally. And the golem demands to be taken there. Um, and so this road trip ensues. Len, Miri, and the golem begin to make their way to Kentucky in a, in a stolen SUV. When they get about halfway there, it occurs to Len and Miri that they're unclear on the golem's intentions. So they spill out of the car in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia to ask him what exactly he plans to do when they get to Wagner, Kentucky. They're like, you're just going to scare them, right? And the golem is like, no, the golem going to kill everybody. And Lynn and Miri are like, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not a good idea. That's, you can't do that. That's, that will not be good for the Jews. And the golem is like, I'm a golem. My job is to defend the Jewish people. I will be slaughtering these anti-Semites. And they're like, listen, if you won't listen to us, there's got to be somebody you would listen to. Will you listen to the Grand Rebbe? Will you listen to Walid, who gave you all that LSD? Will you listen to Larry David? The Golem's like, might listen to Larry David. And they're like, well, we, we can't actually get Larry David on the phone. But standing in this parking lot in West Virginia, Miri's like, I think I found his manager's phone number. So she cold calls the manager. She's like, listen, you don't know me, but I'm standing in a parking lot in West Virginia with this real life 10 foot, 400 pound golem. And he's about to slaughter dozens, maybe hundreds of anti-Semites in some town in Kentucky. And the only person who can possibly stop him, the only person he'll listen to is Larry David. Larry David's manager is like, I love it. <laughs> Pitch it just like that. 
Janice, can you get Larry? He's home. We were just texting. So next thing they know, they're on a Zoom call with Larry David explaining this situation to him. And Larry's like, you mean those Jews will not replace us, pieces of shit? No, yeah, he should kill as many as possible. The golem's like, told you. Thanks, Larry. So eventually, Len, Miri, and the golem, after several more adventures and misadventures, including the conversion of an 11-year-old girl by the golem and an interlude with a guy who has been dressing up like Bigfoot to scare off the gentrifiers in his remote Maryland neighborhood, um, they find their way to Wagner, Kentucky. At which point, Len and Miri sort of find themselves faced with a, an existential crisis, a spiritual crisis. And they're on opposite sides of it. And it kind of boils down to this. It boils down to the fact that you have two choices. You can allow the golem to run amok and slaughter the enemies of the Jews, in which case you might be safe, but in which case you also might no longer be Jewish. Um, this level of unchecked violence and aggression, you may have sacrificed so much this action, this allowance may be so anathema to the fundamental Jewish values that you hold that in attempting to defend and preserve and protect, you may have sacrificed that which is most essential. So that's option number one. Option number two is that you erase the Aleph from the golem's forehead and destroy him. And this is sort of where Len and Miri find themselves by the end of the book, is facing off on opposite sides of this question. Um, yeah, I guess that's the book in a nutshell. <laughs> I gave you an A grade for your synopsis. Yeah, no, I, I read the whole thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have that in common. Sherrod, do you want to give an intro now or at the end? No, you want to eat lunch. Okay. Okay, fantastic. So, um, first of all, th this couldn't be more prescient than to come out right about now after October the 7th. And for if anybody here was a conspiracy theorist, you'd probably think here is agent or behind the October seventh attacks, if you believe in space lasers and such, because this topic really is a hot topic right now. Everything that you just talked about, Jewish power and anti-Semitism and defending ourselves, and is it upon us to get rid of everybody who hates the Jews? But um, why don't you start by telling us what gave you the idea? Obviously, unless you're more brilliant than I think, and wrote it on October the 8th, you wrote this some time ago, and you just kind of hit the jackpot thematically as to what's on the, the hearts and minds of so many people right now. Was it the Unite the Right rally that first triggered this idea in your mind? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, it's funny because by publishing standards, the book came out very fast. I sold the book in October and it came, uh, November of 2022, and it came out 10 months later at the end of September, which does not sound quick, but by publishing standards, 10 months is lightning fast. That's like as fast as they can move. And the reason was that my publisher felt that the book was so timely. And like, I didn't have the heart to tell them that, you know, anti-Semitism would still be around in the spring. So they like rushed it out. The other thing that they, their, their big like genius marketing move, I remember the marketing meeting and they were like, okay, here's the plan. We're gonna publish the book just in time for the Jewish high holidays. And I was like, that doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> you know, like, like Yom Kippur is not where everybody like goes on a shopping spree and like spends a lot of, you know. Um, the impetus for the book, um, 
often what I find happens in my work is that I'll be noodling on like two or more disparate ideas and the eureka moment is when I realize how they fit together and are actually one thing, not two separate things. So in this case, I had been on one hand thinking about the comic premise of a golem created by a totally underqualified schmuck. You know, just the, the humor inherent to the idea of like this thing coming alive and like thrashing and screaming at him in a language he doesn't understand, that just seemed funny to me. But also, that's not a novel. That's like a Saturday Night Live skit, right? Like specifically the type of Saturday Night Live skit that's funny for like the first two minutes and then just drags on interminably for like another 10 minutes and you're like, did anybody bother to write an ending to this thing? So I was thinking about that and about golems. And I had done some thinking about golems and some research on golems for a previous book I wrote uh, called A Field Guide to the Jewish People, which is a humor book that I wrote with Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel a few years earlier. So I had a little bit of golem knowledge under my belt. And then very much separate from that, I was trying to figure out how to write this very ambitious and heady sort of uh, science fiction speculative future novel that was going to be all about epigenetics. Uh, do people know what epigenetics are? Epigenetics is the increasingly scientifically accepted notion that trauma is passed down in the genes, that events of sufficient magnitude, sufficient horror, actually sort of flip switches in the DNA and render traits or, I'm no genetic biologist, so I'm doing the best I can here, um, things that might have been dormant are now active, things that are now active are dormant, and that these changes, these genetic changes, actually get passed from parent to child to grandparent to, to grandparent. That's how genetics work. You pass it back up to your grandparents. Um, so I started thinking about that, and I started thinking that if this was now accepted science, what would be the next step? Maybe the next step would be the ability to pinpoint the moment when the change, i.e. the trauma, enters the DNA. And if you could do that, if you could say, okay, you know, the way that you cut down a tree and you look at the rings and you can tell when exactly in time the fire happened that almost killed the tree, right? If you could do that, then you could begin to litigate. You could begin to hold responsible the parties, the governments, the companies that inflicted that specific trauma on your ancestors. You could sue for damages. This would change the entire world economy. Um, and what would happen after that? Maybe, given the financial importance of this thing, somebody would figure out how to transplant those traumas from a donor to a recipient so that you could get that payout, or you could stash that trauma and wait and see how the political winds are gonna blow and decide whether you want that payout, whether having this trauma as a part of your being makes you greater than or less than, whether it's an advantage or a disadvantage in the world, in the marketplace. It's easy to see the arguments on both sides for how that would go. So these, Gesundheit, so these transplants get engineered. It's very much illegal, it's a black market thing, but then a surprise happens the people who are receiving these transplants begin to experience in a kind of waking nightmare form the actual events that caused the trauma. So now these people who have received these memories that are not theirs are living them in real time and have to figure out what to do with them. 
this brings about a, a, a religious sect called the trauma eaters that are in some weird form of penance trying to eat as much trauma, receive as much trauma as possible, and it's driving them crazy. Other people are intent on trying to seek out and find the people whose memories, whose trauma they received, so they can sort of tell those stories back to them or sell those stories back to them. But this is all black market, so nobody can find these people. But not to get overly technical here, a novel generally needs like a plot and characters. And I had none of that. I just had this conceit. And then I woke up one morning and I realized that if I made the golem a creature with an ancestral memory, this repository of history and trauma, I could explore everything I wanted to explore through that epigenetics novel by writing a novel about the golem. If I'm, you know, golem is usually translated as unfinished thing, but sometimes it's translated as empty vessel. And I was like, if I make this golem an incredibly full and overflowing vessel, I don't have to write the epigenetics novel. I can just make the golem all of those things. And that felt like a novel to me. So I sat down that day and I wrote a five page outline for the book. And I sent it to my agent who responded with a one line email. He said, the golem market is dead. <laughs> I was like, cool, thank you. To be fair, this is the same agent who, I don't know, 12 years earlier told me that go the fuck to sleep was a terrible idea and I wouldn't be able to sell that book. So the real question is why don't I fire Richard? <laughs> that was great. Um, so touching upon a couple of things that you said, um, the golem market. There was a time when the golem market was probably big amongst the superstitious and um, hounded Jews who were persecuted, and there was a need for it internally. In other words, you know, there's this Talmudic idea of a botko, like a, just a, a deus is machina, a voice that comes down from the sky to heal people. And if you can't defend yourselves, if you're a Jewish person, which was probably a great deal of our history, you needed this mythological beast that people would think could come down and rescue us. I wouldn't imagine that non-Jews knew about it, but on a certain level, I would ask the same question, not about your book, but in general, like do the Jewish people need a golem after the establishment of Israel? Because everything has changed since then. You know, up until then, um, people, one of the stereotypes of Jews was that we were a weak people, a people with no land, a people with no power. And I remember Begin um, in his book, Revolt, talked about the fact that we are no longer a people with knees knocking coming to supplicate people to ask them to work for Israel and for the Jewish people. We're a strong people and the whole idea of Israel was to completely rewrite the narrative so we no longer needed golems, even to the point where the Israelis had been accused of inflating their successes to come across as more beastly and powerful and deflating the number of casualties. If you read about all the wars, most historians agree that Jews, many more Jews perished than it was admitted, and you know we took credit for killing more than we did. So I guess my question to you is now that Israel has been established, like do the Jewish people still need a golem, even in light of what we've been seeing happening? Well, it's interesting. I think the way that history and human nature have played out thus far suggests that the line is very, very thin, perhaps to the point of being non-existent between needing a golem and becoming a golem. Um, and you know, if there's anything, 
in the mythology that is consistent, any point of agreement around the creation of golems, the recipes, the actions, the meaning of golems. It's the fact that the golem is never allowed to exist for any longer than is absolutely necessary to restore some semblance of peace, if he can. Um, nobody makes a golem and then allows him to go on living or existing as a kind of eternal watchman or a nuclear deterrent to anti-Semitic violence. By that token, nobody makes an army of golems. And it's not because there isn't enough mud in the world. Nobody makes a thousand-foot golem. Nobody makes an army of thousand-foot golems. There seems to be an inherent understanding that creating a creature that powerful, that full of unregulated aggression and violence, in the absence of morality, who we cannot fully control compromises our humanity to a certain extent. And to allow that creature to exist in perpetuity, or even a second longer than is necessary, would be anathema to our values. So the golem is always deactivated as soon as he possibly can be. Um, I think about that more and more as I reflect on the, you know, the events of the past few months. Mm -hmm. Great. Can I throw a question out there? Yes, yeah, sure. So is there anything about the material that Len uses? Is it just clay, he's got a lot of it? Or is there an electronic surge? Is there a spider bite? Like, what's the thing? <laughs> does, does, does the clay get imbued with any sort of meaning? Well, Len, of course, is operating on the recipes he finds on the internet. And he gets very lucky. but. Generally speaking, in the mythology of the golem, sometimes the recipe calls for human blood. Um, sometimes the recipe, mostly though, the substance itself is not what is most important. It's the, it's the prayer, it's the incantation, it's the action. Sometimes, you know, recipes involve walking a certain number of times around the golem. Sometimes you're supposed to get dirt or material from a cemetery. Len is like doing this in his backyard and he's like, what is a cemetery? It's a place where something dies and is buried and you know, presumably something died in my lawn at some point in human history, right? Like a, a bug or a dinosaur, I don't know. Um, you know, he gets lucky in that he is able to find the needle in the haystack or hit the bullseye without knowing what direction he's even throwing the arrow in and the golem comes to life. This, of course, is a work of fiction, so I'm taking some liberties. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, it's, it's not that the mud or the clay comes from some divine source or is specially sourced or costs a lot of money. I think the point is actually the opposite. It's about crafting this being out of nothingness, out of you know, dust. Um, in a possibly related fact, the word golem only appears once in the Torah, and it doesn't refer to the creature it refers to Adam before God fills him with the breath of life. And it's like, yeah, unfinished thing, empty vessel. So I think if anything, it's about the mundanity of the material created, used to create the golem. 
In fact, maybe I'll follow up um, on that because when I read the book, I, as somebody who's a musician and an artist, I noticed immediately that you didn't choose a protagonist to be a rabbi, which would have been the low-hanging fruit and the most obvious thing to imbue him with some spirituality or a spirit or a sense of life. You chose somebody who was an artist, and it made me think of back in the day. Now, of course, rabbis and cantors work together in synagogues, but back at the inception of the Jewish spiritual practice, rabbis headed Batei Midrash, they were in charge of teaching, which was a much more intellectual and legalistic thing. And then the cantors were the ones who ran the synagogues and did the spirituality through music and through prayer. And so I just found it an interesting choice. I also thought it would have been, you know, probably a low-hanging fruit to, to mock and make fun of a rabbi to have him as a character. Did you put any thought into why you selected Len to be an artist rather than... Because, like I said, nor normally somebody would have had had to choose a rabbi to bring this being to life and as, as a, somebody who's an artist or a cantor, I just sort of was struck by that. Yeah, I mean, my intention for comedic purposes and otherwise was always for Len to not be somebody deeply invested or particularly invested in the rituals of Jewish life. It's interesting, I mean, yeah, he's a, Len would, I think, be very flattered to be called an artist because Len has accomplished nothing as an artist. Len is an art teacher who is thinking about writing a novel, <laughs> you know? Um, in fact, much of the first chapter of this book is devoted to the novel that Len cannot figure out how to write, which, to your great surprise, is about epigenetics. Um, much of what I just described is also doubling as the novel that Len can't figure out how to write. Um, you know, a lot of this book is about competing versions and conceptions of Judaism. Uh, Len comes from one perspective. He is not observant. He is not knowledgeable. He is not particularly, yeah, he's not observant or knowledgeable. But as the book continues, and as his interactions with the golem proliferate, he begins to realize that some of his most deeply held values are values that he considers Jewish. And he sort of has this innate sense of what is and isn't Jewish. And it's not like some Lenny Bruce routine. It's not like, you know, tits are Jewish and balls are goyish. It's like letting the golem run wild and kill people is not Jewish, despite what it may say in the Torah about rising up and slaughtering those who would kill you first or whatever. Len has this very deeply held set of values that to him are Jewish. Um, despite not, you know, Len describes himself as observant only in the sense that he notices things. Um, Miri, on the other hand, the woman that he sort of uh, recruits into the story because she speaks Yiddish, Miri grew up in a Hasidic sect, which she left at the age of 18 because she's gay. And that lifestyle, you know, is not very much appreciated in the milieu in which she grew up. And she's been very much on her own since. So she's walked away from this world that is imbued at every turn, at every moment, with tremendous amounts of ritual and meaning. But she still has a relationship to it, even though she's no longer in the fold. Um, and along the way, we meet plenty of other people with different conceptions of what it means to be Jewish. We had, you know, the golem, who, as I said, was previously made and unmade, in 1941 in the Ukraine, the person who made him was the grand rebbe of a sect that largely perished 
in the Babanyar massacre. In real life, 33,000 people died in that massacre and 25 survived. In the world of this book, one of those 25 was the seven-year-old son of the Grand Rebbe, who 81 years later is the 88-year-old leader of the sect in which Miri grew up. And the golem, largely as a way of semantically separating himself from Len as his creator, basically says, I was never properly unmade, so I don't work for you. I work for the grandson of the guy who made me, so take me to see him. And Miri's like, I really don't want to do that. Um, and thus does the golem get recruited into a very elaborate situation where this Hasidic sect has outgrown Brooklyn and is attempting a wholesale move to unincorporated land upstate, which involves uprooting not just their population, but the web of political influence that allows them to live as they want to in Brooklyn and trying to rebuild it upstate. And there is a congressman standing in the way of this. So, you know, the Grand Rebbe and his fixer encouraged the Golem to travel upstate with them and confront this guy and possibly rip off his arms. Um, how did I get to this? You took mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, a little bit earlier when you were giving your synopsis, you sort of used a phrase like the golem was, you know, a creature in search of anti-Semites or in search of a target. And um, I think my grandparents' generation, even my parents' generation, saw a lot through the lens of anti-Semitism in ways that I think in my generation, not only did we stop seeing that, but we sometimes would turn to them and say, you're seeing everything wrong. It's not like that. We're not facing that. I mean, most of my life, I didn't really face much. Although, do you, were you on our soccer team? Jeremy and I played. We used to, we were on a Jewish school on a team, and we started winning, winning, winning over the years, and they'd throw rocks at us and pennies. So I think in athletics, we did face some, but that was just kind of it. But anyway, certainly, I think a lot of people in my generation were the, of the thought that, you know, it's not so prevalent anymore. You don't have to go on and on about it. And of course, I think October the 7th has reset the way nearly every American Jew and, and Jews worldwide think about what's under every rock and stone and what people are, are really thinking about um, as for the Jews and anti-Semitism. So, um, you know, the, the question is, you know, vis-a-vis anti-Semitism, the, the big issue at the end of the book was, is, is, is the solution to it destroying everybody who's an anti-Semite or not and that's what we're all grappling with now, not just in Israel, but in, in our way of dealing with this crisis. I mean, you know, it was a struggle for the characters at the end, and obviously they, they deactivated their golem. But I mean, where does that leave us? Thanks for that. Yes. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> well, he said, you said you told everybody at the end, I think, that they changed the letter that deactivated him. But they were grappling with that issue. Do we, is the solution to anti-Semitism to eradicate anti-Semites? In the book, they didn't do that. But what is the solution then? So just to be clear, the question is, uh, how do we solve anti-Semitism? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Either with a golem or what's the plan B? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a great question. Uh, maybe I'll read a bit from that scene. Um, this is in the aftermath of this rally, right? The Save Our History's Future rally. The golem shows up. Len convinces him not to kill everybody. But then 
these guys start shooting at the golem and he turns back and he kills like 11, 12 people and they end up escaping. Um, so this is sort of in the aftermath of that. They're in, they're in the SUV, they're headed back to Brooklyn, Len, Miri, and the Golem. Um, and Miri is uh, reading on her phone, you know, sort of the immediate social media uh, ramifications and ripple effects of what just happened. Um, Wagner chief of police decries violence at far-right rally that left 11 dead, including three officers, says supernatural being is a hoax, read Miri. Yeah, okay, dumbass. Millions of people just saw him flip over a car. Good luck with that. Watch, said Len. They're gonna spin this so fast. The left are the real fascists. The Jews are the real fascists. It's probably up already. You're just not looking in the right places. Search golem plus fascist or golem plus terrorist. He gripped the steering wheel harder. It's all gonna get worse, he said, and felt the truth of it sink into his body. The SUV felt suddenly airless, but they were moving too fast to open a window. The golem leaned forward into the dim green light of the dashboard instruments and said, everybody who hate Jews must die. Len jerked the wheel hard to the right, cut across two lanes of traffic and onto the shoulder of the road. He slammed his foot against the brake, wrenched his arm free of the sling. Len broke his arm earlier when the golem threw him into a tree and he tried to climb down from the tree um, using some tefillin ropes, but they, they weren't as strong as he thought they were and they snapped and he broke his arm. He slammed his foot against the brake, wrenched his arm free of the sling, and twisted at the waist. And as the vehicle's momentum sent the golem lurching forward, Len palmed his forehead and smeared the olive etched there as hard as he could. No, screamed Miri, stop. The SUV shuddered to a standstill, and the golem tumbled backward into the cargo hold he'd hollowed out for himself. This was the Grand Rebbe of the sect's SUV, which they stole, and then he ripped out all the seats to make it more comfortable for himself. I had to do it, said Len, the pounding of his heart so heavy he could feel it vibrating his eardrums. A massive truck tore past, horns blaring. Len undid his seatbelt and climbed over the center console. He crouched beneath the low ceiling and peered at the massive form of the golem slumped on his side against the SUV's back door. A pair of passing headlights lit him up, and Len gasped. The features of the golem's face had softened into a state of repose. The craggy brow relaxed and smooth. The black eyeballs had retreated back into the depths of his head, making the golem appear simultaneously blind and all-seeing like a statue. His musculature had rounded, disarticulated. He wasn't dead because he hadn't been alive, but he was no longer shot through with an ineffable vitality, no longer the repository of his people's history of persecution and survival. He was merely 400 pounds of stolen clay lying in the back of a Hasidic holy man's stolen car inscribed with the Hebrew word for death. Len's elbow hurt like a motherfucker. He'd refractured it or something when he'd wiped away that letter. Then his cheek began to hurt worse because Miri hit him in the face with a surprisingly potent right jab. Why the fuck did you do that, she demanded. Len pushed past her and opened the door. The air that hit him was hotter than the air inside. It smelled like paving tar and scorched rubber as if the highway was breathing right in his face. But at least outside, he could stand up straight. 
Miri followed as he'd known she would. Len touched his face gingerly, then yawned to realign his jaw. He turned to her, cradling the bad arm in the good. He wanted to kill everybody who hates the Jews, Miri. He had to be stopped. She looked at him with fire in her eyes. Listen to yourself. He had to be stopped? What about them? What about the people who actually want us dead, who've been killing us for thousands of years? Before Len could answer, Miri jabbed a finger at the golem's body. You know why it's truth and death? Because when you kill a golem, I didn't kill anybody, Len said, trying to convince himself as much as her. Because when you kill a golem, Miri repeated, undaunted, you kill the truth. You go back to lying, to pretending we aren't in danger all the time. The highway was still. A moth flitted through the headlight beams and disappeared into the blackness beyond. I can just remake him, you know, said Miri. I'm actually Jewish. Everything hurt. The moth returned and thwapped straight into the headlight, or maybe it was a different moth. Len tried to gather his thoughts. You can either kill the golem, he said slowly, wanting to lay this out right, or you can kill the anti-Semites. Miri crossed her arms and waited. And if we kill everyone who hates us, he continued, we'll be safe. Yes, for once. Leary, Len raised his finger in the air like a rabbi. Thank you. <laughs> but we'll no longer be Jews. We'll be something else. Miri shook her head. Bullshit. We've always defended ourselves. Ask the golem. Oh, wait, you can't. Defending ourselves is different than killing every Jew hater. You sound like a fucking idiot. Len spread his arms to take in everything, the road, the night, the moon, the water somewhere that neither of them could see. We're supposed to repair the world, Miri. Tikkun olam. Miri cocked her head and blinked at him. Dickhead, she said lovingly. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe this is how we repair the world? I'll stop there. I realize that's not an answer to your question. <laughs> There's a good smoke screen though. But, but I will say this, like my, my firm belief is that literature's job is to raise more questions than it answers. Mm -hmm. And I would also argue that there's nothing more Jewish than raising more questions than you answer. Like I'm reading the Talmud right now and you know, you wade through like interminable endless pages of esoteric arguments spinning out among hundreds of sages over centuries, over stuff that doesn't even make any sense to begin with, right? Arguments over when you deliver a divorce scroll to your wife, but she's standing on the roof, so you decide to throw the divorce scroll over the parapet and thus divorce her, and it catches on fire in midair for reasons that are not adequately explained and burns up, is it considered delivered? And of course, it depends on whether it's on the updraft or the downdraft. So they'll like argue about this for pages and pages, and then finally end the discussion by saying that there's no agreement to be had and we don't actually have a conclusive answer to this conundrum. So I think that it is both deeply Talmudic and also much easier to not <laughs> have all the answers to all the questions. That was great. Okay, I think we're getting close to the end, but um, I will step back and 
respond to that with another question, just like you said. Um, I was impressed by the fact that for somebody who had so much success with your, you know, Samuel Jackson um, lullaby, that you then reverted to writing on Jewish themes very frequently. Usually, it's kind of the opposite. When somebody starts out as a Jewish writer or a Jewish celebrity, they get some a taste of mainstream. They generally try to scuttle that. I, mean, I remember I was in a Jewish rap band back in the day called MOT, and we were asked to write a theme song. You guys remember Goldberg, the wrestler, the pro wrestler? His whole personality was built on, I'm the Jewish wrestler, I'm strong, I'm the toughest Jewish wrestler. He, he was in Universal Soldier too. And they said, write him a theme song. We wrote it called Power of the Chosen People. It was really great. We played for him. He's like, it's too Jewish. So he immediately wanted to disassociate himself from it. And yet, here you are having a, a, a success in a, in a mainstream way, and now you're touching on Jewish themes so frequently. Just in, in, a, in a quick nutshell, maybe you can explain uh, why you do that. It seems like you know, it's box office poison on some level compared to what you could be doing. <laughs> um, my only real principle as, a, as an artist, as a writer, is to do stuff I find interesting. So I've never been one to really engage in too much strategic thinking or thinking about my brand. Like my brand, if I have a brand, is that I do what the fuck I want, you know? Um, Go the Fuck to Sleep was not something that I knew was gonna be a hit. I literally wrote it because my two-year-old wouldn't go to sleep. And I had no notion that anybody else felt the same way I thought that maybe it would be funny to me and like a few other like cynical, shitty parents. Um, and so no one was more surprised by the success of the book than I was, except maybe my publisher. Um, and you know, I wrote that book out of an honest feeling and a desire to explore the, the, the simple paradox that you can like love your kid to death and also at a certain point be willing to do anything to get out of their room when they want, you know, like Don Corleone could walk in the room and be like, I'll put the kid to bed, but I may ask you to do me a service one day and that day might never come. You're like, whatever, Don Corleone, like we can work out the details later, just take this baby. Um, you know, I've, I've always just kind of like written and, and pursued the things that I find interesting and, and complex and nurturing uh, to me, and this happens to be one of them. Um, it's interesting, the designation of being a Jewish writer. Um, I'm only ever thought of as a Jewish writer when I write explicitly Jewish things. Like the first time I, I was ever invited to speak in any kind of a Jewish space was not on my first novel, not on my second novel, it was my third novel that had the word Jews in the title. Suddenly I was a Jewish writer. Um, and, you know, more often than not, what I found was that I was being recruited into spaces as a Jewish writer by organizations that had something in mind rather than just an honest, interesting exploration of what that might mean to be a Jewish writer or what the Jewish arts were. I was usually being used to bait some hook, and what they really wanted was, like, Jews to marry each other and have Jewish babies. And they thought that if they brought like a young Jewish writer, it might attract the type of people who are young enough to procreate or whatever, which turns out to be generally not true at all, uh, <laughs> respectfully. Um, but you know, I've, I, I haven't since that point consistently been a Jewish writer. It's project dependent. I toggle between being recognizable in that way and not. I remember 
in the aftermath of Go the Fuck to Sleep, I published my next novel a couple of years later. And I was like, oh man, I'm gonna kill it. It's gonna be a bestseller off top, because all that needs to happen is like 1% of the people who bought Go the Fuck to Sleep buy my magical realism graffiti revenge story set in the tunnels of New York City, rages back, no problem. Like, I'm a brand now, I'm a best, you know. No, people don't follow you from project to project. I also remember when my publisher of Go the Fuck to Sleep got really nervous when I uh, collaborated again with Sam Jackson on a political ad, an Obama-Biden ad in 2012 called Wake the Fuck Up. He was like, I don't know, man, like Republicans buy books too. And I was like, fuck them, I'm gonna do what I want. But I say all this to say, people don't follow you from project to project. The thread of your career is obvious or interesting or apparent only to you. So like people who know me for one thing, don't follow me into the other thing. It almost never happens. People like, they just don't make those connections. So I'm a Jewish writer seemingly only when I like write a book that is explicitly Jewish. People don't think about the ways in which Jewish thinking or Jewish themes or Jewish humor might infuse work that is less obviously Jewish. Just like they don't think about the ways in which, you know, for example, as somebody who came up in hip hop, steeped in the aesthetics and the politics of hip hop, how everything I write is also a hip hop novel because it takes on those artistic principles and pillars unless it's explicitly about hip hop. This is just kind of the siloed way that people approach the arts and it's unfortunate because I'd love to have a conversation about like, you know, what Jewish humor is in a context that isn't about a Jewish book. You know, like, I don't know. I, I'm, 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 you know, it's on my soapbox here. But, uh, you know, like, it's funny, like, when I was touring this Jewish humor book called A Field Guide to the Jewish People that I wrote with Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel, the first thing people always asked was, what is Jewish humor? And my answer was always like, well, to start with, have you ever heard this term Christian humor? <laughs> you know, and like, is Jewish humor just like any joke told by a Jew, or are there specific principles and strategies and rhetorical techniques inherent to Jewish humor. If so, can a Jewish joke be told by somebody who isn't Jewish? Right. You know, because to me, the best Jewish humor is so incredibly incisive and does so much. There are like Jewish jokes that if I could write a joke that good, I'd never have to write another novel. And in true like Jewish fashion, some of those jokes are despised by 50% of any Jewish audience. Like my favorite Jewish joke, I think of all time, is a joke that my mother has repeatedly asked me never to tell in public. It goes like this. So this Jewish guy moves in next door to Rockefeller, right? And he buys a house just as big. He buys the same car. He even hires the same gardener to trim the shrubbery. And one day Rockefeller walks out of his house and looks over at his neighbor. And he's like, hey, you think you're as good as me, don't you? Guy looks back, he's like, as good as you? I think I'm better than you. Rockefeller is furious. He demands to know why. The guy's like, well, for one thing, I don't live next door to a Jew. <laughs> I can end with another, another Rockefeller joke, which is, 
another Rockefeller <laughs> joke. What one old Jewish guy, Moskowitz, says to Finkelstein, Finkelstein, if I had Rockefeller's money, I'd be richer than Rockefeller. He goes, how the hell, Moskowitz, are you going to be richer than Rockefeller if you had his money? He goes, because I'd have his money and I'd do the bar mitzvah on the side. And a final, a Christian joke. I can, can we leave with a Christian joke or a Gentile joke? What does a Gentile do when his car breaks down? He fixes it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's hear it for Adam Asbach. That was beautiful. <laughs> you don't know that one? Here's the book, get it. Load upon and provokes many questions that aren't all answered, but it's on all of our minds. I think it's, it's good fodder for today. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining us. Beautiful. It's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I K A R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon. <laughs>